story is told that it was once announced that the devil was going out of business and would offer all of his tools for sale to whoever would pay his price. On the night of the sale, his tools were all attractively displayed and bad-looking lot that they were. Malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, sensuality, deceit, and all the implements of evil were spread out, each marked with its own price. And apart from all the rest lay a a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, much worn and priced higher than any of the rest of them. Someone asked the devil why that price was so high. The devil replied, that's discouragement. And they said, well, why do you have it priced so high? Because, replied the devil, it is more useful to me than all of the others. With it, I can pry open doors that are tightly bolted against the others. Then once inside, I can use any other tool that suits me best. It is so much worn because I use it with nearly everybody, as very few people yet know that it belongs to me. It hardly needs to be added that the devil's price for discouragement was so high that it was never sold. He still owns it, and he is still using it. Now, do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever find yourself disappointed with the way things are, maybe your work with the Lord? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the answer to both of those questions for all of us is yes. There are just times when discouragements and disappointments weigh on our hearts and our minds. When this happens, they can affect our lives in a negative way in so many different ways. Right? They can derail our life. They can cause us to lose focus on what is going on in our lives, what's important. And if we aren't careful, they can even cause us to lose faith and to give up in our service and our devotion to Jesus. Now, thankfully, we are not the first people to experience these things. And so we can learn from the experiences of others. Open your Bible tonight to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. It's page 718. We're going to look at the first eight verses. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Uh, Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word of the Lord, which I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. title of the message tonight is, The Best is Yet to Come. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us tonight as we look at your word. Speak to us and encourage us and strengthen us where we need it. Father, you know what the the struggles and the trials that we brought in here with us tonight. You know the the disappointments, the defeat, and the discouragements that we face. Tonight, let your word and your spirit work together to bring encouragement and strength to our lives that we would go out 
Lord, confident that you are here, that you are with us at work in our lives, and you will see us through. Father, have your way in all things. Fill me with your spirit tonight. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, you may be confused right now because it says on the slide that we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah that the message is in Haggai. And that's not a mistake because we haven't actually departed from our study in Ezra and Nehemiah. If you were here last week, you know that Ezra 4 ended with the work of God being stopped by the enemies of God. Well, Ezra 5 starts with these words. It says, the prophet, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel... And Jeshua rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Right. So where we were at, the work has stopped. And it has been stopped for a while. So God sends prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to encourage them to get back to doing the work that God would have them to do. What we're looking at is a part of the message that takes place in Ezra 5, 1 and 2. Now, when you look at this passage, you can't help but notice that discouragement and disappointment and really even defeat are themes in this passage. Right? And you can understand why they feel this way. Right? They were basically content living in Babylon. They had lives, they had families, they had jobs, they had homes. They were there and they were living. And yet God stirred the heart of Cyrus, the king, to send back and rebuild the temple. But God not only had stirred Cyrus's heart, He stirred their hearts that they would go home and rebuild the temple. So they go home with excitement. God is at work. God is reestablishing His people. He's going to get things going like it was. And yet, almost immediately after getting going, they face opposition and they are forced to stop. Now, from what I can tell, it has been about 16 years. right? So from where we ended last week to where we are tonight, 16 years has passed, and the temple remains unfinished. So God raises up the prophet Haggai to call the people back to their task at rebuilding the temple. Right, that's chapter 1. In chapter 1, they restart, they rebuild, but then other things happen, and they end up stopping again. They become discouraged, and they want to quit. Haggai writes to them to challenge them, to encourage them to carry on. And I think the message of encouragement to carry on, to keep going, not to give up. I think that's something that we can all use in our lives all of the time. But I was thinking about it. We're towards the end of one year. We're moving into a new one. Uh, and we definitely need some sort of an encouragement at times to look forward to the year that's coming and not to look forward to it with dread. Now, to me, there are three verses that stand out as key verses in this passage. First is verse 3. Right? Who is left among you? Who saw the temple in its former glory. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So those who had seen the original temple, they were discouraged about what's going on with the new temple. They felt that the new temple was not going to be anything. It was going to be like nothing in comparison to the old. Now can you imagine the stories they must have told about the glory days? Right Back in our day, well, when we were younger, things were different when, on and on, it must have gone as they, they looked back at what was and, and really ignored and despised what was going on now. But then you look at verse 9, it says, The glory of the latter temple, says the Lord, will be greater than the former. Right? Now, God says the glory of the new temple is going to be 
greater than the glory of the old. Now, I imagine that was shocking to some of the to some and wonderful news to others. Right to those who had seen the former temple, this had to be shocking. How could this newfangled temple be greater than the temple of their youth? I mean, Solomon built the old temple. There's no way these kids today could do anything half as good, much less better than what Solomon did back in the day. At the same time, I imagine this news was wonderful news to those who had not seen the older temple. Those who were just now beginning to see God at work in their midst and rebuild this temple. God was pleased with what they were doing. God was going to bless them in mighty ways. What God was doing in them and through them and for them, it, wasn't, it was not in any way inferior to what God had done in the past. That had to be encouraging. And what we see is that those who look to the past rather than the future, they were left disappointed, defeated, and discouraged. Right? And that is the lesson for us. When we live in the past, devalue the present, the inevitable result is disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. Right? When we live in the past and devalue the present, the inevitable result is disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. In this passage, it gives us four principles to keep from falling into this trap. Right? The first may be the most difficult. Let go of the past. Right? Verse 3. They're looking and they're seeing what used to be. And they're really almost despising what is. Because of what it used to be like. Those who remember the former temple despised the temple that was being built now. All they could see was how different it was in the temple of their youth. The current temple, it seemed insignificant and unimportant. This temple was going to be somewhat smaller. They didn't have all the resources necessary to decorate it and make it look as fancy as it was in Solomon's day. And as they looked at this temple, they did not see what God was doing among His people now and rejoice. Rather, they missed out on what was going on because they looked back to what they considered the glory days. And as they looked back at the glory days, they were disappointed, they were defeated, and they were discouraged. What they had to do in order to see what God was doing was they had to let go of the past. And that's the lesson for us today as well. Holding on to the past, living in the past, looking back at the past, it will always result in disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. Because we tend to remember the past as better than it was. Right? And the result of this is that the present seems worse than it is. Right? And we've all heard people talk about this. Right? Well, back years ago, everybody was like this and the world was better because of this. And today, because back then was so much better, today is so much worse. But, but is it really? I mean, is today really so much worse than it was 50 years ago? Or do we just look back with a sense of nostalgia at what it was like 50 years ago and think it was better then? I mean, don't we tend to, to elevate what we, what we saw and what we liked about the past and, and neglect an awful lot of what was really going on in that time? I mean, there's nothing that we see in our day that really wasn't going on then. So we look back with a sense of nostalgia 
And we say, that was so much better. The world was a better place. The church was more effective. Everything was better back then. And because of that, today is so much worse. Today, it is so much terrible. And what we have to do is we have to let go of the past. I mean, do you know that Scripture explicitly tells us to forget the past? God said through Isaiah, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I mean, we are told we are to let the past go. And I think there's at least two reasons we have to let go of the past. Right? One is there, is there are no redos. The past that some people need to let go of are past failures. I mean, who among us can look back at the past and see a 100% success rate at every decision, every action, every reaction, every word? Now, these past failures, they may be minor failures. A word that was spoken that shouldn't have been spoken. A joke that we thought was funny that really wasn't. Made everything awkward in the conversation. But some failures, they are catastrophic. They resulted in ruptured relationships. They, they resulted in, in terrible consequences brought into our lives that, that may have changed the course of our life or the course of someone else's life. But no matter how big... Or how small the failure of our past is. There is no going back and choosing differently. We cannot redo or undo past failures. Constantly looking back and saying, I wish I had done differently. I I wish I hadn't said that. I I wish we had made a different decision on that day and that time. It doesn't fix anything now. It doesn't make anything better. What it does is it leaves us. Defeated. It leaves us discouraged. It leaves us disappointed. Because we cannot look to the present or the future with any sort of hope because of that back there. There are no do-overs. So we have to let go of that past. Another reason we have to let go of the past is it's not coming back. The past some people need to let go of is a time of victory. A time of peace. A time of prosperity. Or the good old days, whatever that may be. We have to let go of the good old days because no matter how good they were, they're not coming back. The world is different. Things have changed. And those good old days, whatever they were, they're not, they're not resurfacing. No matter how, longing we, how longingly we look back, No matter how much our heart aches for days gone by, they are not coming back. And constantly looking back with longing for their return, it leaves us disappointed. Because how could today or the the future be as good as that? It leaves us defeated because I'll never be like that again. And it leaves us discouraged because it's just going to get worse from here. Now there is a way. To look back that doesn't leave us disappointed, defeated, and discouraged. But looking back at past failures to learn from them so we don't repeat them. Well now that's life giving. That's not leaving us defeated, discouraged, or, or uh, disappointed. But looking back at past victories. 
it can encourage us for future victories. Looking back at the good old days with nostalgia can stir up warm feelings. And that's fine. All of that is good. And it doesn't leave us disappointed, defeated, or discouraged. But when we look back and say, I, I wish, I want to go back, I would do it over, I, I want that again, that, that's what leaves us disappointed, defeated, and discouraged. That's what was going on with them. They couldn't even see what God was doing in rebuilding the temple. They couldn't see that there was a whole new generation of Jewish men and women who were rising up to serve the God of heaven and reestablish His worship. All they could see. I wish the old temple was still here. Oh, how pretty it was in those days. So the question that we have to ask is, what is the past that you and I, that we have to let go of? But on it, think about it on an individual level. What past failures do we need to let go of so that we can move forward, not live disappointed, defeated, and discouraged? What past victories or what good old days do we need to let go of so that we can move forward and not live disappointed, defeated, and discouraged? Those are things on an individual level that we all have to decide. We have to look and realize what we're doing. And see that what we're holding on to is hindering and killing our present and our future. And let those things go. And we have to think about it as a church. The whole series of Ezra and Nehemiah is the people of God doing the work of God in the community of God. So we seek to reach diamond for Christ. What are our past failures as a church that we need to let go of? That we need to stop looking back and saying, I wish we had done it differently. What things in our past do we need to say, well, that happened, but it's done. We can't go back. What victories, what things in the past that were the good old days of our church do we need to say, that was great and it was wonderful what God did then, but God is still here. God is at work now. God is at work in the future. We can't look back longingly and want to go back there. That's done. What past things do we as a church need to let go of so that we can move forward and not live disappointed, defeated, and discouraged. When we live in the past and we devalue the future, the inevitable result is disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. So we must let go of the past. Secondly, study God's Word. We all know people that give their word, but that word doesn't mean a whole lot. But God is not like this. God is not like this because God does not change. Theologians refer to this aspect of God's character as the immutability of God. It means He is not capable or susceptible to change. Now since God does not change, He does not break His word. If He has said He will do it, He will do it. And we can be sure of that. But since God does not change, if He could do it, He will always be able to do it. If He could do it in the past, He can do it in the present and He'll be able to do it in the future. But we see references to this with God's power in verses 4 and 5. Right, Particularly at the last of verse 4, God says, For I am with you. And then in verse 5, According to the word that I covenanted, I can't say that word, with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. But what God reminds them of is, one, how He was with them in the past. Right? I made a covenant with you years and years ago. 
to be your God and you would be my people. Right? And, and I've always been with you. Right? When it came time for you to be delivered from Egyptian slavery, I did it. I did great and mighty things. I, I did powerful things to bring you out, to make it possible for you to be in this land today. Right? He, he reminds them that He is the author of all of the great miracles that adorned their past. All of the things that they celebrated, He did. He had always been with them. Yes, He was with them in their glory days of Solomon's temple. Yes, he had been there and part of all that was going on. But not only that, he still remembered. He still remembered the covenant that he made with them. He still remembered the promises that he had given with them. And he was standing on every promise he had ever made. He wasn't going to change his mind. They were still his people and he was still their God. And then he says, what would be the greatest thing of all? I am with you and my spirit remains among you. I'm still here, he says. I haven't left. The temple, yes, the temple's gone. Abraham is gone. David is gone. Moses is gone. Solomon is gone. But I am here. And that is all that really matters. What made the temple great wasn't the gold and the silver and the precious jewels and the size. What made the temple great was the presence of God. What brought about the miracles in Egypt wasn't Moses holding the staff. It was God. It was always God who did it. And what they needed to do was trust God's promises. That He was who He says He was and He would do what He said He would do. And we too must trust God's promises. But the character of God is such that He is always faithful to His word. If he has said he will do it, he will do it. And that's part of our hope, right? Our hope is a, a well-grounded, well-founded assurance that God will do what he has said he will do. But the way that we get that hope, the way that we trust those promises, the way that we hold on to those things is that we study Scripture. We have to study God's Word if we want to hold on to that sort of a hope and those sort of promises. Right? Look at this. I love this verse. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we through patience and the comfort of scripture might have hope. That this this book is written to us in part so that we would have hope. That we would have a well-grounded, well-founded assurance that God will do what he said he will do. So that we will not be like the people in verse 3 and think, well, God's presence is because of a big temple. That God's presence is because of all of these things. Instead we will say, no, what made it great then wasn't that it was then, it was that God was there. And so we get in the Bible. We study it, we learn it. right? And three things I gave in the handout. Believe Scripture, study Scripture, and obey Scripture. That's how we acquire that, that comfort and that hope. Believe Scripture. I mean, that's common sense. There is no way Scripture can give us comfort and hope unless we believe it's true. And there is a desperate need in our day for disciples of Jesus to take Scripture at face value. To not try to find out why it doesn't mean what it says it means. To just say, God has said it, therefore that's right. 
Can I understand it? Can I explain it? No. No, I don't. If you're familiar with, the, with Billy Graham, you know that Billy Graham at one point, he went through a, a period of time where he doubted the Bible. He was around a bunch of seminary graduates from a liberal seminary, and they were mocking him for his faith that the Bible was the Word of God. In the story he tells, he went out one night in the middle of the woods, and he, he laid the Bible on a, on a stump of a tree, and he prayed and said, God, I, I don't... I don't understand everything I read in there. I don't understand how everything that's in there can be true. But if you'll give me faith, if you'll confirm this, I'll preach it. I'll live it. I'll do it. I will never back down on what it says. That's why when you listen to Billy Graham's sermon, one of the most repeated phrases he says is, The Bible says. The Bible says. Now he, and he would say, I, I don't understand it all. And I don't see how some things can be true. But the Bible says... God has said, so I believe. Oh, how there's a need for disciples of Jesus to have that kind of childlike faith in the Bible today. Study Scripture. Now, we are, the things that are written for our learning, learning implies Scripture. But how are we going to know the things God has done if we're not in the Bible? How are we going to know the promises He's given if we're not in the Bible? How are we going to know the power of God, the glory of God, the, the, the wonder of God if we're not in the Bible? We need to be a people of the book. I mean, it is, it is critical to our faith, to our spiritual life, to our spiritual health. But, and, and we need it, I think, in two ways. I do think we need church. I mean, I think we need to be in church. We need to be where it's proclaimed. Now, of course, you're out on a Wednesday night when it's 30 degrees and raining, so... You are pretty well aware of that and involved in that. But we also need to be in the Bible on our own. Studying it for ourselves. I mean, if the only time you're in the Bible is when you come to church, you are starving yourself spiritually. You are spiritually malnourished. You will not have the faith and the strength necessary to move forward. Now, when we come here, I'm always going to try to preach the Bible. That's always going to be central to what we do. But no matter how much I preach twice a week, that is not going to sustain you. I mean, how many of us only eat physical food twice a week? And then only when someone else feeds it to us? Probably none of us. Not probably none of us. None of us. We all learn at young ages to feed ourselves food. We should also learn to feed ourselves spiritually by studying the Bible. And then obey Scripture. Patience in Scripture refers to perseverance and endurance. Obeying the Scripture isn't always easy. What they're being called to do is not easy. But it is what they have to do. But what we have to do is we have to obey it and keep obeying it. And really the idea is just we, we do what we're supposed to do and we keep doing it. Right? If it says to pray, we pray. Does that mean it's immediately fixed and everything's better? No. But what do we do? We pray and we keep on praying. We study and we keep on studying. We, we fast. We do all of the things that the Bible says to do. And we just keep on doing it. We have to trust what the Bible says is real, what it's true, what's right. So what promises has God given to you as an individual? Has God promised to never leave you nor forsake you? 
Has God promised that you can cast your cares upon Him? Has He promised that the peace of God will guard your hearts? Has He promised that His Spirit will fill you and lead you along the best way for your life? What promise has God given to our church? Has He promised to save the lost? Has He promised to restore prodigals? Has He promised to heal broken hearts? Has He promised to restore ruptured relationships? He's promised all of these things and so much more. But we miss out on them. We miss out on the hope and the encouragement that these promises give when we are not in the Word. As we study the Word, as we hear the Word preached, the Holy Spirit takes it and He makes it living and active in our lives. And as He does this, we are given encouragement and strength and hope from Scripture. We're encouraged to trust God's character, to trust God's promises, and to live the life God says to live. We miss it all when we don't study God's Word. When we're not in God's Word with it speaking to us and giving us hope and encouragement about the present and the future, we tend to live in the past. We tend to just kind of stay where we are. God's Word is always pushing us forward. God never calls on us to live on past experiences, on past knowledge, on past answers to prayer, on past comfort, on past strength. He calls us to current, to future, to keep pressing on, to keep moving forward, to keep doing, to keep living. When we live in the past and devalue the present, the inevitable result is disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. So we study the Bible to fight against it. Thirdly, focus on God's greatness. Now God's promise in verse 9 seems impossible. The glory of the old temple, or the glory of the new temple will outshine the glory of the old temple. just doesn't seem possible. The old temple was built during the golden age of Solomon's reign. King David had spent the last few years of his, his reign as king, ensuring that Solomon had everything he needed to build the temple. Solomon not only inherited all kinds of gold, silver, and precious jewels to build the temple, he was also blessed by God with wisdom and riches. And all of these things, they enabled him to hire the best carpenters and artisans of the day to build the temple. Contrast that with what's going on now, and it does seem where you would see it would be little in their sight. Israel had been exiles for 70 years or so. They had little money, little gold, And little influence on the world around them. On top of this, they were going to have to do much of the work themselves. No artisans, no carpenters, none of the great people of the past that had built it. How on earth can this new temple in its glory compare to the old temple, much less have greater glory? God answers that in verses 6 through 8. And in doing so, He tells us three facts about His greatness that God is powerful, God is faithful. God is plentiful. God is powerful. Look at verse 7. Verse 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more. It is a little while and I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. They shall come to the desire of the nations. God promises to shake the heavens, the earth and the sea. God is faithful. He says the last of verse 7. And I will fill the temple with glory. Again, it's not about what they're going to do. 
The glory was never in what they did. It was in God that He was going to fill it. And then God is plentiful. And and, uh, that doesn't seem grammatically correct to me. Kelly says it was, but I don't know if it is or not. Um, I'm going to take her word for it that it is. But I needed a word that provided the idea of abundant provision that still ended in F-U-L so that it would be consistent. Um, But God says in verse 8 that the gold and the silver are His. I, I was reading today in Psalm 50. That God talks about He, the earth and all its fullness, the cattle on a thousand hills. The picture is that God owns everything. Right? And so the lesson from, from this, these three truths that God gives to them, is that God is able to do whatever needs to be done. Right? Whatever God wanted to do in, in making this temple glorious, He could do. He had the power necessary. He had the ability to make His promises come true that was necessary. He had the money that was necessary. God had the ability. And this season that we've just celebrated is a great reminder for us of this. Jesus was born in a supernatural way. He was born of a virgin. And when Mary was told that she was going to have a kid, her, her response is exactly what you would expect. How can this be? I don't know a guy. And yet the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One will be, the Holy One that is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. God is able to provide whatever is needed to move you or me or our church into the next season of our lives. What is next for you in your life? God is able, whatever that is. He is able to make the glory of what's coming greater than the glory of what's been. What's next for our church? God is able to make the glory of what's coming greater than the glory of what's been. God can do it because nothing is impossible to God. He is able to provide whatever is necessary. He has the power to do whatever is necessary. He is faithful to keep His word in whatever He has said He would do. He has all the resources necessary to provide whatever is needed. Whatever God wants done, God can ensure that happens. So what we have to do is focus on the greatness and the power and the wonder of God. Because when we look at circumstances, when we look at this and all of the stuff and what needs to be done and the idea that the glory of the new temple can be better than that of the old, we're just like, that's not possible. We don't have the gifts. We don't have the abilities. We don't have the money. And God's over here like, I can do it. Just Trust me. Quit looking on the mission I've given you. Quit looking on the direction you're going and look to me. Look and see how great I am. Look and see how awesome I am. Look at me. Think of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he gives that that great picture of God and all of His glory. And God says, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And he hasn't even heard the mission. And God tells him, you're going to go and you're going to preach and nobody's going to hear you. They're going to be hard-hearted. They're going to be closed ears. They're they're not going to listen. And Isaiah says, well, how long is that going to go on, God? God says, until judgment comes. 
And the houses are raised and the people are dead. And Isaiah says, I've seen you. So I'm still going. He doesn't balk at the mission. He doesn't give up. He just keeps going. When we live in the past and devalue the present, the inevitable result is defeat, disappointment, and discouragement. So we have to focus on God's greatness. And then finally, we have to move forward. God's message of encouragement is meant to move them forward with the work. The goal is not for them to feel encouraged and then not build the temple. They were meant to be encouraged and then start rebuilding the temple. It's the same with us. What we learn in Scripture is always meant to move us forward. There is a time to rest. And there is a time to be recharged. But even that is meant to move us forward. There are two aspects to moving forward. We have to be strong and do the work. Look at verse 4. Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. And work. Be strong and work. The work that they were going to do was hard. They've already faced opposition and the bad guys won. More opposition is coming. Be strong and do the work. Be strong and don't give up. Be strong. Well, the work that God has called us to do, whether it's on an individual level of moving forward, it's still hard. Because whatever we're, we're holding on to in the past, it's difficult to let go and to move forward. What we do as a church in moving forward to reach our community for Christ, it's hard work. It's going to be hard work. But thankfully, God gives us the strength that we need to do it. You may not be able to read that, but it's Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. It's a great passage to study and meditate on. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God has all strength to do all things. And that's wonderful. But even better is that God can give that to whoever He wishes. The Bible says He gives that to the weak. To those who know they have no strength. To those who say, God, the work is hard and I don't think I can. God, I need your help. God says, I can get you through it. In our own strength, we're all going to fall. Even the youths faint and and get weary. Even the young men shall utterly fall. In our own strength, we are always going to fall short. Always. Whatever our church is wanting, God wants our church to do as we move forward. We don't have the combined strength necessary to do it. Whatever it is that God wants you to do as you move forward, you don't have the strength necessary to do it. In time, we all falter. In time, we all get weak. In time, we all fall. But God does not get weary. God does not faint. And He gives power to the weak. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And do the work. And then live with expectation. 
God tells them that the glory of the new temple will be greater than that of the old. And as I've mentioned, that would have sounded probably like crazy talk to them. But that's okay. Their job is not to make the glory fall. Their job is to be strong and do the work. God's job is to make the glory fall. And He was able to do far more than they could ever imagine. And it's the same with us. Right now, some may not be able to imagine what lies ahead and how that what lies ahead could be greater than what's behind. And even saying it sounds like crazy talk. And that's okay. It's not your job and it's not my job to make what lies ahead greater than what lies behind. Our job is to do the work and be strong in the Lord. God's job is to make the glory fall in the future. And He's up for the task. One of my very favorite verses. At Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. There's a lot in this that we don't have time to cover tonight. But just two quick hits. God is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. I mean, that's big. I mean, that's something to me that I, I just like to sit and think on that verse. Because I can ask and I can imagine some really big things. And yet according to Scripture, no matter how big what I ask is, no matter how big what I imagine God doing is, it's nothing, nothing compared to what God can actually do. Secondly, that exceeding abundant power is at work in us. Notice that, that last part. According to the power that works in us. Right now, within you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is exceeding abundant power to do more than you could ask or imagine. It is able to do more than you could ask or imagine in you and through you and for you. That power that's at work in you can empower you to accomplish far more than you could ever ask or imagine. You could imagine the biggest thing that God could do in your life in the future. And that power is already at work within you to accomplish it. We could imagine the biggest thing that God could do in our church in the future. And that power is already at work in us as disciples to accomplish that for the future. God is able to make the glory of the new greater than the glory of the old. But we have to move forward. We cannot live in the past and experience the glory of the new being greater. Because when we live in the past and devalue the present, the inevitable result is disappointment, defeat, and discouragement. So we must move forward. And right now, I want you to, to bow your head and to close your eyes just for a minute. We're about to close. And I want to close by praying for you. And so I want you, if you're here tonight and you're discouraged and you can't imagine how the glory of what's to come can be greater than the glory of what's behind, or there's something in the past you have to let go of, or you feel defeated, discouraged, and disappointed, I'd like you to raise your hand so that I would know and I can pray for you. Let's pray.